The old way of selling is projections. I had to do it for decades. I've got this many people at 20%, this many at 50, this many at 90. Let me do the math. I'll do me. That's my projection for the week, the month, the quarter, the year. The problem with that is nobody thinks of themselves as a percentage. Not one person in my wholesale career ever said, hey, John, put me down for 50% on your projections. <laughs> people, we need to put our empathy hat on. Where do they see us? They've never heard of us or our company, or they have, but we're insignificant, or they're interested. And this is where most people get stuck. They're like, oh, I'm interested. Send me info. You get all excited, you put it on projections, and then you get ghosted. I call it being stuck at the friend zone at work. And so this is where storytelling really kicks in. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selleck, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call the seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Brace yourself for an episode teeming with creative insights as we engage in conversation with John Livesey and decode the mysteries of a sales and storytelling guru's life, plunging deep into hats three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur. John is a force to reckon with in the sales, marketing, and storytelling world, boasting a diverse career that crosses various industries and roles. Currently, he's captivating audiences globally as the acclaimed pitch whisperer, inspiring confidence, and winning business pitches. Many sales teams in tech and healthcare, including those at Olympus Medical and Bosch and Loam, turned to John when they were tired of being seen as just another vendor stuck in second place in business pitches. They were tired of pushing out forgettable facts, being on a self-esteem roller coaster, and burning out. John knows this pain all too well, having experienced it all himself. Having secured the Salesperson of the Year in Condé Nast and authored four books on the power of storytelling as a sales tool, John's keynote talks are an ideal fusion of inspiration and actionable takeaways. Apart from his impactful keynote speeches and coaching sessions, John is also an author. His latest book, The Sale is in the Tale, brilliantly blends storytelling with sales, demonstrating the art of storytelling in business. So, if you're ready to swap forgettable facts for compelling stories, win pitches confidently, and evolve into the entrepreneur who charms with narrative and triumphs in sales, Let's roll out the seven hats. Welcome, Matt, for John Livesey. John, welcome to the seven hats. Thanks for having me, Yuval. Absolutely. You're known around town as <laughs> the narrative maestro, often referred to as the pitch whisperer yes. and a storytelling superhero who even totes a cape. You I know, do. You, I saw it. You have a unique talent for transforming lives. Before we delve into the art of storytelling and sales, I'm sure that the Seven Hatters would love it if you could just share your own personal story with us. So John, where were you born and how was your childhood like? 
Mm. I was born in the suburbs of Chicago, and I had a relatively stable childhood growing up in the suburbs. My parents both worked. I was involved in high school activities. I was a lifeguard, and that's how I helped put myself through college. And I learned a lot about myself. At first, I thought I wanted to be a dentist, and then I got to college and realized, oh, I'm not good with my hands, and I don't really want to do chemistry. So I got into the world of advertising instead, and that's really where I felt at home because it's really a combination of show business, storytelling, and business. And, you know, like what makes you remember an ad, the jingles, the com- and all that fun stuff. And then I moved to LA and got into the world of advertising. I worked for an ad agency doing commercials for movies coming out on home video. If you can remember Blockbuster being everywhere. I do remember. Let me ask you a quick question. So let's go back a little bit. You have any siblings? I have two younger sisters. Mm-hmm. Two younger sisters. What were your parents doing? What was their profession? Uh, my dad owned a gas station with my mom's brother for a number of years. I guess they were entrepreneurs. I never even heard the word entrepreneur when I was a kid. And then he became a carpenter. And that was you know, challenging because it was sub- sub-zero weather. You couldn't go outside and build houses in that. And so yeah. he didn't get paid if he wasn't working. And then my mom was an old-fashioned, what they used to call secretary back in the day where they would take dictation and type for people on a typewriter. Yeah. So it was, I never thought of us as being poor, but I would say we were probably lower middle class. And, you know, we had a home that my parents, I think, bought for, I don't know, $30,000 of some crazy amount so many years ago. And I learned that hard work was a big part of it. Both my parents were really into volunteering. And so my siblings and I definitely saw that modeled for us. Mm-hmm. I was at the Boy Scouts. You know, I would shovel neighbors' driveway for money. I would mow grass for money. It just was always the work ethic was definitely instilled. Uh, my dad was really big on being kind and and friendships, and my mom was all about. You know, we had a complete set of encyclopedias in our house. <laughs> Who didn't? At yeah, that time. it was all about you know education and exposure to the arts and really giving us a sense that whatever we wanted to do, we could do, you know, kind of unlimited possibilities. And that was great because it gave me a sense of confidence to go out into the world. You know, I wasn't a shy kid or anything. And I remember, you know, when I got my letter accepted into the University of Illinois, it was a big deal. You know, before email, you got an actual letter. And it was also, you know, a big deal to go to college for my family. My parents, uh, my dad had become an accountant, but didn't like it. But we had to, you know, it was very much a state school and there was no private school considerations or going out of state was. So to get into the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, which was like a couple of hours away from where we grew up, was definitely a big accomplishment at the time. And obviously I'm grateful I, I got in there. It's so interesting to me how one event like that, we call it the inciting incident in a story, changes your whole life. Uh-huh. Had I gone to school someplace else, I wouldn't have met the friends I made, who I'm still friends with to this day. And the same thing with majoring in something. I was like, how do people know they want to be an engineer or an architect already? You know, the, And back then, most people stuck to the same job for 40 years. It was a whole career or a lawyer. And I had very much black and white thinking back then, meaning all or nothing. Like when I thought I wanted to be a dentist and I thought, oh, this isn't for me. I was like, well, maybe I'll drop out and work for the airlines. My parents are like, ah, 
let's try to finish. <laughs> and so I had to rethink, well, what am I going to do? What else? And then that's how I got into advertising. And my mom said, you know, there's a guy in our office. He's in sales. He seems to be happy and makes good money. And it was that one casual comment that made me explore that career. So you went through school. Is that the first job you got out of school advertising? Well, I was going to do that. And then I got a job working for a company that at the time was cutting edge where you could drop off a letter in one city and pick it up in another and rent out temporary office space. And I was in the advertising department of that company and getting a fax machine was uh, having a fax number on your business card was very prestigious. And it was like a (laughs) six minute thing that would roll on this smelly paper. And then from that company, I transferred into the sales department from the advertising department. And, you know, I didn't have much training and I was just listening to what other people were saying, trying to convince, you know, at the time, ironically, entrepreneurs to lease office space here and how prestigious it would be to have a downtown address instead of your home address um, and meet, you know, use the conference room whenever you want to meet with people. And, and usually it was, you know, like one person law firms or something. Then I did get into tech sales where I was competing against IBM and that was a huge education because they had, they would sell with FUD. You know what that term is? Explain. Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. I love it. So I was working for a company called Control Data at the time, and we made something that was compatible to IBM and was less expensive and even more reliable, but IBM would scare people and saying, if you buy anything that's not IBM and it breaks, and it broke a lot back then, we're going to point the finger at the other vendor and you'll get fired for bringing yeah. it. But if it breaks and it's all IBM, nobody gets fired for buying all of IBM. And that's when I had this aha moment that, oh, there's so much that goes into a sales decision besides logic. It's not just who has the fastest, most inexpensive, reliable piece of machinery. There's a lot of emotion that goes into it. And, you know, they videotaped us role playing. You know, back then everybody gave a business card uh, in case somebody forgot your name. And how often did you use the potential client's name in your conversation and eye contact? And it was great training. And that really was the first aha for me to say, it's not just pushing out facts and figures. And ironically, to this day, that's what a lot of people are still doing. So when did you, I know you were married. So when did you get married? So I didn't get married until I was in my late forties. Mm. Well, well, for one reason, it wasn't legally allowed for gay people to get married. Got it. So it's very, you know, and I was together with my ex for five years before we got married. And um, during that time, I got laid off from my big corporate job at Condé Nast at the time when the mortgage crisis hit in 2008. And that was really devastating because I felt like a kick to the gut after working in a company for 15 years and you sort of blur the lines between who you are and what your job title is. And it was a very cool job. I got to take clients to fancy restaurants and go to all kinds of entertainment events. And when all that stops, you think, well, who am I without this job? Yeah. And you know, laying off used to mean that you had done a bad job as opposed to, no, this is, you know, an economic issue and everyone's being laid off in the outside office and 30% of the New York staff. And so it definitely put a, a strain on the marriage. Then I decided I was going to try and become an entrepreneur. And of course, that takes a huge amount of uplifting and work. And I was naive thinking, well, if I make this much as a sales rep, and I make the same amount as an entrepreneur, I should be fine. And I didn't realize I got to pay for my own insurance. I got to pay to have a <laughs> website done. And I got to on and on and on, put money back into the company. And it, you know, 
forget making a profit and saving anything. It was all about just trying to break even, you know, when you have those conversations of we might not be able to go on vacation this year. Yeah. In that particular case, he was like, well, I'm still going because I didn't lose my job. And that really is what was the trigger for that relationship ending. And I talk about, we all have these stories that we tell ourselves of how our life is going to be. And certainly when you get married, you never tell yourself, oh, I'm going to eventually get divorced from this person. And so when that happens, I think it's another like losing a job. It's it's a grief process. Even to this day, when I'll like go to a doctor's office and they're like, single, married, or divorced. And I think to myself, must I check off this divorce box? What in the world does that have to do with my physical? And it's none of your business. And it just really still makes me angry. And I just put single because I don't think I need to keep labeling myself as someone who's divorced. Yeah. I want to get to the sales side of things, but I'm just curious, what advice would you give others who are either young or Mm -hmm. a little bit older making that commitment to someone else and still in the business world or in the corporate world where it gets so stressful? What Mm -hmm. did you learn? What kind of lesson and what recommendation or some advice that you would give those that are starting out and potentially are getting married or Mm. committing to a partner? I would say, make sure that whoever you do decide to get married to has your back, regardless of whether you've got a lot of money coming in or not, and that they really want to be with you for you. And that ideally, we all want to be with somebody who feels like they've won the lottery being with us. Yeah, And uh, they become our biggest supporter and cheerleader. And when you have self-doubt, they're the ones going, no, 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 you'll get another job or you can launch a podcast or you can, whatever your dream is, Yeah, um, that that person is there to cheer you on and not get mad when time, you know, it says for better or for worse, but for some people and until the worst comes along, you know, certain characteristic traits don't come out. It's like, it's ironic in storytelling. You know, I took a course in writing for screenplays just to understand the structure. And they would say, you know, if you want to show that a character is honest, you don't say it. You know, Yuval is a very honest guy. Instead, we would show you in a situation where you could steal something and nobody was watching and you could probably get away with it, but you don't steal something. So it goes back to the show, don't tell. There's also that great quote, when somebody shows you who they are the first time, believe them. Yeah. So Maya Angelou, I believe, yeah. said that. Mm-hmm. So those are those are the same things I would advise wise in terms of relationships, whether it's a personal commitment to a, a relationship or a job. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into sales because everything you do is selling. You yes. are convincing someone to take action. And I think these stories that you're going to be talking about in the advice should be utilized, not just for a sales call, but anywhere else in your life where you have the opportunity to interact with another person. And story is huge. So I've had the opportunity to interview some exceptional storytellers and coaches, including Hassani X and Michael Haig and Patricia Fripp. Mm. Do you know Patricia? I do. She was one of my early speech coaches. She's incredible. And you should listen to that episode. Mm. But each of them has their own unique approach to storytelling. So let's begin with the fundamentals. And explore your techniques because it might be different than theirs. Yes. The question is, why is storytelling so crucial in sales or in life? Mm. And what makes a story truly compelling? How can we, as mere mortals, uh, Mm. tailor these elements to fit our specific 
environment and the industry that we're in. Okay. So I heard three questions there. Why is storytelling important? What makes a story compelling? And how can we learn to tell a story? So the reason storytelling is so crucial, my premise is whoever tells the best story is the one that gets the sale, is that we buy emotionally and then back it up with logic. And that numbers literally leave us cold. And people forget what you say when it's all stats and they'll maybe hear three pitches. I know as a sales keynote speaker, I usually am interviewed in a final three. And I know many companies have a final three when they're pitching for their architectural services or a tech company product. And if everybody just talks about numbers and then they have a meeting after the meeting where they go, well, we heard three pitches. Who do you think we should hire? Well, they all sound the same. I guess we should go the cheapest. That's what happens when you don't tell a story. Yeah. But when you tell a story that tugs at people's heartstrings, that they can remember and repeat, it makes you both magnetic and memorable. And that's what makes a story really compelling. I have a three C checklist around, it should be clear, concise, and compelling. So why does it need to be clear? Well, if you confuse people with acronyms, they get confused and the confused mind always says no, and they're never going to tell you they're confused. And then the reason why it needs to be concise is you want them to be able to remember and repeat it. Because in that meeting after the meeting, if they go, well, you know, when Yuval was telling a story about how he helped a client, I saw myself in that story. And it sounds like he could really help us. And But if your story doesn't have a point or rambles, they can't remember it and repeat it. And then finally, compelling goes back to the whole emotional reason. And if the stakes aren't high in the story, then nobody cares about it. So it's up to us to really dig down and describe those problems in a way that people care about what's going on. So let me give you an example, and that will be the third answer to the structure of how does a mere mortal learn to t- go from just being a good storyteller to a great one or a black belt in it. The first thing is to be aware that your objective is to tell a story that somebody sees themselves in. And so you need to have multiple stories. Your brain is like a playlist or a jukebox, to begin, depending on your age. Instead of a specific song coming up, a specific story. So the story you tell a CEO is not the same story you tell a purchasing department person. Mm-hmm. And so I was working with Olympus Medical, the camera company that makes equipment. And they said, oh, we have this piece of equipment. It makes surgeries go 30% faster. We just don't understand why more people aren't buying it. It's so logical. And I said, well, again, it's still an emotional decision. And I asked some questions and crafted this story to them, which is imagine how happy Dr. Higgins was down at Long Beach Memorial using this equipment when he could go out to the patient's family an hour earlier than expected. And if you've ever waited for somebody you love to come out of surgery, you know every minute feels like an hour. And he comes out and says, good news, the scope shows they don't have cancer, they're going to be fine, and then turned to the rep and said, you know, this is why I became a doctor for moments like this. So that's what an example of a case story instead of a case study. And the rep tells that case story to another doctor at another hospital who sees himself in it and says, that's why I became a doctor. I want your equipment too. And Olympus said, oh, that gives us chills. Not only are we not telling a story, it never occurred to us to make a patient's family a character in that story. Because when you're looking at that, there's four parts. There's the exposition, the who, what, where, when. You got to get specific and paint the picture. And then the problem, in this case, I thought, okay, surgery's 30% faster. What does that even mean? Well, normally it's three hours. Now it's two hours. Okay, so you're saving an hour. Who cares about that? Well, I guess the doctor cares. They're on their feet less time. Maybe could do another surgery. Maybe the hospital cares. They would make more money. But then I really went to, where is the emotional and not just financial? Oh, it's the patient's family. And you see how I pulled you into the story by saying, if you've ever had to wait. 
Yes. Even if you haven't, you could probably imagine it or you know somebody who did. And then of course, the solution is they don't have cancer. But if the story just ended there, it wouldn't be a great story. The resolution, the aha, is the doctor's insight going, this is why I became a doctor. And that's what makes the other doctors who hear that story want to go on the journey with you. So hopefully that answers all three of your questions. It does. A lot of it has to do with connecting. And I love how you said case story versus case study. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just launched a case study for my company. And I'm thinking maybe we should just rename it as case story. What you said was interesting because ultimately it's not about the widget or the product. It's all about what kind of value you're adding to the person who is paying for that product. Mm -hmm. And what you did in that story, which I thought was interesting, is that you brought in two stakeholders. The first one is the one paying the money, Mm -hmm. right? The the customer who's in the operating table in their family. That's the first stakeholder, which is important and nice. But you also brought in the second stakeholder, which is the doctor, the one Mm -hmm. that's working for the hospital. Because the company is supplying two different stakeholders and you're really honing it in. I love that. Speaking about connecting, so I wonder about salespeople who come from other industries Mm. outside the ones that they're selling for, who may not have firsthand experiences with the problems that they're addressing. How can they effectively tell their story, connect with their clients, and really have them empathize with them? Mm. When I first started selling multi-million dollar mainframe computers against IBM, I didn't have an engineering degree and many of the sales reps did. And, you know, I have to imagine the kinds of guys I was calling on had short sleeve, white shirts, engineers, plastic pocket protectors with six pens in them. And they were very tech oriented. And now I would bring a tech person with me to explain that part. And then I would sit back and observe when the potential client was confused. Because there's a lot of egos in the room. Yeah. And I would say to my contact at the tech person, oh, I'm sorry, could you say that a different way? I am not a tech person. And I'm so I took ownership. Almost was, it was like listening to a foreign language sometimes. And then what we were trying to do back then was convince them to buy more hard disk drive space to keep things running faster. And I would say to them, you know how your mom or your girlfriend or your wife has a closet full of clothes and she's probably got a bunch of stuff jammed in there and can't find anything? That's kind of what your data is. And so if you have more space, you can spread things out and get access to it faster. And so I gave them an analogy that they could use. Again, they probably don't have that many clothes, but they, the woman in their life does. Uh-huh. And if you have a visual like that, so analogies, metaphors, even though I didn't have that particular expertise, that's what I would recommend to somebody who's getting into an industry that they may not have a lot of experience with. And then get to know your colleagues' case stories and share those stories with someone. Interesting. I don't know if you know who Russell Brunson is. He yes. is he is a direct marketer in the digital space. He's the founder of ClickFunnels. He mentions the what, not how. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what does that mean? It means that when you're so enveloped in your product, you've taken a long time to study it. You've taken a long time to learn the ins and outs and the you geeked out on it, as he says, right? (laughs) But it took you five years, 10 years to really get get an understanding. Imagine how you were before you 
geeked out on the product. Mm. What got you excited about it? Because as soon as you are speaking with someone who doesn't know about you or doesn't know about your product, Mm -hmm. they're not at the stage where they would understand or really care about the inputs that you put in your brain all Mm -hmm. these years. I did one earlier where I said your brain is like a jukebox or a playlist. Exactly. Yep. Instead of a song, it should be a specific story that comes out. Yep. Then you could have went deep into all the reasons why and you didn't. So that was (laughs) was really great. So you believe in the old ways of selling solo are gone. Mm. And now you recommend collaborating with your buyer and agreeing to where and when you will both kind of land a plane. <laughs> Can you expand on that? Is that yes. related to any popular sales methodology such as solution selling, spin selling, challenger, Sandler? Give us a little more detail about that okay. part of it. Well, what I've done is create an analogy, shocker, about being a co-pilot with your buyer. Mm-hmm. And so you're both in the cockpit together. You're not flying the plane and the the buyer's in the back, first class or whatever, and vice versa. And what you know when you, that analogy really holds up because there's a flight checklist that they do before they get in the cockpit. You know, they're walking around the plane, they're checking, making sure everything works. And a lot of salespeople drop the ball on that. There's very little preparation. And so if you're going to take that analogy, oh, I'm a co-pilot with my buyer, then I have to do a checklist and really make sure I'm prepared and customize my talk and whoever this person is. And then as a co-pilot, you have an agreement up front of where you're going to go. You know, when I flew from Austin, where I live, to Cabo recently to go to a friend's wedding, and they said, we're now landing in Cabo, not one person stood up and said, what? We're landing? I thought we were (laughs) going to fly around forever. And yet a lot of conversations and sales just fly around in circles right? as if there's unlimited time and fuel to do that. No, you know, when you get on the plane where you're going. And so that's the same thing with the potential buyer. It's like, we're going to go on this journey together. If this seems to be something that meets your budget and your needs and all this other stuff, we're going to land the plane. It's not a shock. And landing the plane isn't a pushy close. It is a logical conclusion to the journey. The new part that I add to it is the storytelling as the way to land the plane. That you're not having to suddenly go, I'm shifting from building rapport and telling you what my presentation, how that meets your needs. And let's now go into the close part of it. The storytelling is the whole thing that's the through line through the whole experience. You tell your own story of origin to build rapport. You're telling a company story to show values and action. And then you're telling case stories And then literally your clothes can be, does that sound like the kind of journey you'd like to go on with us? And it's an invitation. And if you've told the right story and that they see themselves in, it's like landing the plane. It's not this forced thing, nor is it this aggressive challenger thing where you have to try to like, I'm in control, not you. And let me tell you what you need because I have a better sense of your, you know. So that's the the big part of it is a lot of, none of those other uh, things really emphasize the need for a story. Um, to make you not be seen as a commodity. These days, a lot of sales are complex sales with multiple stakeholders that must mm-hmm. sign off on the product. So how do you land the plane when you know that they're not going to land on that call? Yeah. And how do you follow up with that? Mm. I help people create a roadmap. And the old way of selling is projections. I had to do it for decades. I've got this many people at 20%, this many at 50, this many at 90. Let me do the math. I'll do me. That's my projection for the 
the week, the month, the quarter, the year. The problem with that is nobody thinks of themselves as a percentage. Not one person in my whole sales career ever said, hey, John, put me down for 50% on your projections. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and so I tell uh, people, we need to put our empathy hat on. And I've created this ladder from invisible to irresistible. And we're like, where do they see us? They've never heard of us or our company, or they have, but we're insignificant, or they're interested. And this is where most people get stuck. We're like, oh, I'm interested. Send me info. You get all excited, you put it on projections, and then you get ghosted. I call it being stuck at the friend zone at work. Yeah. And well, you probably never had that happen to you, but most of us have been stuck <laughs> at the friend zone and dating. I, I, half my pipeline is exactly <laughs> there right now. Yeah. And so this is where storytelling really kicks in. You start to come up with a story or a scenario that intrigues them to start imagining a different future. And then finally, at the very top is the irresistible. These are clients that love you, but maybe you're not getting the referrals you should from it. And so like any relationship, it can be taken for granted. So I have my clients identify two or three people on each rung of the ladder and strategize together. What can we do to move up one rung at a time, not go from invisible to irresistible. I'm just like asking somebody in a coffee date to marry you or LinkedIn request. And then would you like to buy all in the same sentence? Exactly. That's happened to everybody. But going back to what I said about that meeting after the meeting, when you've told a case story that's that's clear, concise, and compelling, that people can repeat, they become your inside brand ambassadors. And so when they're presenting to the people that didn't hear all the pitches, that's when you shorten the style cycle and the committee votes. And it's an unanimous vote because that story has been presented so compellingly that they said, oh, we definitely need this. That sounds like, you know, the client he described sounds just like us. And we want the outcome, the resolution that they have. So following the meeting, there's always the follow-up emails. And a lot of sales folks to this day, and I don't know why they would do this, say things like, hey, I'm bubbling this up to the top. And they continue to just harass the prospect for months with the same, hey, I'm checking in. Have you heard of me? (laughs) So basically, I just wanted to understand, do you tell stories in your email responses or how do you follow up? One of the things, my favorite things to do in a follow-up is to not just say, putting this back at the top of your inbox so much as maybe there's a new story that's recently. I just got another client who sounds a lot like you who decided to go with us or here's a new outcome we just got from another client that's very similar to yours. And if you'd like to hop on the phone and hear more details, let me know. So that's also called an open loop in storytelling where you're like, a, like tune in next week to find out what happened to your favorite character on the Netflix episode. So if you can create some intrigue in the email, want to continue that conversation. And sometimes it's just as simple as saying, what if? What if we did this? Would that help you change your mind? Or let's have another conversation to see what you might want to add or subtract on the proposal we sent. It's, yeah. It keeps it collaborative. Very, very interesting. I know we're short on time. so. I will close out this interview with a question. Who did you have to stop being? Mm. And who did you need to become to manifest your current success? I think I had to stop being someone who was so obsessed with what other people thought and needing outside affirmation and confirmation that I was enough. Mm. And I had to start becoming someone who is not attached to the results and trust the process enough to believe in myself that what I have to offer is valuable and that people want to pay for it. 
Wow, that's great. So tell the seven hatters what you're currently up to. I know you have a book Mm -hmm. uh, that you want to promote. How do they reach you? What's the best way of connecting uh, with the great John? (laughs) My book is a business fable set here in Austin. So it's a story about storytelling. It's called The Sale is in the Tale, T-A-L-E. If you want to get the first chapter, you can just text the word pitch to 66866. And finally, if you can't remember my name or my book, just Google The Pitch Whisperer and my content shows up that way on my website are all the videos of me speaking. And uh, if anyone's listening and is interested in having a keynote speaker at their kickoff meeting, let me know. And you also do consulting, right? Do you work with large corporations or do you also work with smaller brands or companies with maybe just a a handful of team members? I've worked with big companies that billion dollars in revenue that have big presentations coming up and they want some coaching, that one hour pitch of what they can be saying, what stories they can tell to win it. Uh, And then I've also worked with individuals who are needing some help on their own stories to either get a job or to get their company's story in line with their ideal clients. Awesome. John, it was a pleasure having you on Seven Hats. Great conversation. And I look forward to potentially having you back to ask some more incredible questions that potentially we can get schooled on. So thank you, John. Appreciate (laughs) it. Thank you. Great being with you. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with John. Let's end today with the show segment that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here is my takeaway. Our chat with John today got me thinking about the whole concept of storytelling. You see... In the world of sales and pitches, we often get sucked into the numbers, the product features, the bottom lines. But John reminded us of something we easily forget. It's not just about the hard data. It's about weaving a narrative, stirring emotions, and creating a mental image to which the listener can relate. We're so used to a robot selling style, all data, no passion, just features listed on a PowerPoint presentation. Imagine if we turn the sales robot into a real, living, breathing human being. It's about reaching out from the heart, earning trust, and telling a tale that captivates attention. This is about making people feel something. It's about shifting from the commodity frame of mind to something that's more, well, human. This isn't some sales gimmick. It's about real connection. And that is what truly wins people over. As John puts it, Storytelling can turn us into revenue rock stars. And I love that. One of his clients even said, quote, we won three new business pitches in a row after your talk, end quote. That, my friends, is the power of a good story. So to all you entrepreneurs and salespeople out there, here's a nugget to ponder. It's not just about what you're selling, but how you're telling it. A good story can transform the game. And let's not forget, it's not always about winning or losing, but about the journey, the lessons learned, the experiences gathered, and the stories created. After all, as they say, life, your life, is the greatest story ever told. I want to thank John once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom. And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so that we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.